As the racing season winds down, the separation season begins. Now, when I say separation season, I don't mean the season to separate yourself from racing, although that's exactly what many of your competitors are doing. And that provides an opportunity for you to separate from the pack. Within This Is Bracket Racing Elite, we focus on growth year-round, but the gains, they're, they're small, they're incremental during race season for two reasons. Number one, because your attention as a racer is split, right? You've got upkeep, maintenance, travel, all the things involved with the racing season, in addition to a focus on your own growth. And because other racers are working hard at that time too. It's this time of year, this separation season, where putting in the work can really allow you a leg up on the competition. If you're serious about doing just that, and you'd like to surround yourself with a group of knowledgeable trainers and accountable peers with the tools, the resources, the wisdom to help you take that next step, and perhaps even with the occasional kick in the pants to keep you on track, this is Bracket Racing Elite is the answer. We've helped thousands of racers just like you take the next step toward becoming the best version of themselves on the racetrack. Elite can help you do the same. Enrollment is open as of Monday, November 27th, and it closes December 8th. Learn more at thisisbracketracing.com slash elite. Right. Welcome back or welcome to It Is Way Back Wednesday. Joining me once again, as he has every week, during the pandemic, basically. I think we're going on two months, Kevin. Uh, Kevin Don't Kennis. remind me. <laughs> <laughs> good point, good point. Uh, senior editor at NHRA National Dragster, longtime racing enthusiast, been around the sport forever, seen, been around, seen some things, Kevin. And uh, as I always say, a, a walking, talking encyclopedia of the sport of drag racing. Kevin, thank you again for joining me here. Happy to be here. I'm uh... It'll be nice when we do these and we don't have to mention pandemic or in our introduction when it's just after another exciting weekend of racing, we're back with more news, but uh, we'll get there. We're, we're, we're moving in that direction. So it's, it's all good. Today, we are going to throw it back 18 years. We've bounced around quite a bit. Today, we are going to 2002. Um, Kevin, let's set the stage on a personal level, what was going on in your life 18 years ago? Uh, 2002 was a big year living in California, as I did for quite a while. Uh, my then girlfriend, future wife, Jill moved out. So that, that's when things got pretty serious. And, um, you know, there's only a few really, really terrifying moments in your life. And when you pull up to the airport and, and your, your girlfriend is standing there with all of her bags and a one-way ticket, um, that, that, We'll, we'll tend to give you some perspective on life, but uh, um, happy to say that was 18 years ago and we're, we're still together. So uh, uh, she must like me. <laughs> that's that moment where things get real, as they say. I think that's what they, the kids they, say they, these days. They, they, they get very real, but, but it's been good. And, and th those who know her, you know, the sport's first ever junior drag racer, um, still very involved in the sport, drives my car from time to time. So, uh, you know, they say find someone that shares your interests, and I'm fortunate enough to have done that. I didn't know that. So she was like one of the original at English Town? The, yeah, it was the, her and, and Dave Knapp, who, uh -huh. you know, whose family owned the track. Well, when Dave's father built the first car, you can't just build one of them. You need to have somebody to race. And, and Jill and Dave had been friends since, you know, I think elementary school. And uh, 
it's funny at the time Jill was about 15 and her dad said you're gonna get in this car and you're gonna drive it at Englishtown and she said no I'm not dad you know she was I think a little apprehensive at first but uh, then she you know she she ran in at the summer nationals in front of the crowd so the first ever pair of junior drag racers it was uh, the future Mrs. McKenna. Wow that's quite a claim to fame that's cool. Yeah yeah she's, she's a little shy and sometimes embarrassed she you know she I, I promote that a lot. She, she generally doesn't. Um, but yeah, she was, she was on the cover of National Dragster long before, uh, uh, well, I, I've never been on, so. <laughs> that is awesome. So um, for me, 2002, so the, the summer of 2002 fell between my junior year and what would ultimately be my, my senior year of college. And uh, I'm, I'm really proud of myself looking back for having the foresight to do this. Um, although at the time, I think it was just like, hey, this would be fun. But I do remember thinking, this is probably the last four months of my life where I won't really have any commitments, right? I, right. I'll get done with school, I'll start. Little did I know that 18 years later, I still would not, you know, have grown up officially. <laughs> but I, I remember thinking, like, I should take advantage of this. And um, we had... I had a motorhome, I had a trailer, I had a couple of race cars, I was having some success. And basically, um, I think it was maybe the first week of June, I went, I was living in, in Texas at the time, I went to a race in uh, Shreveport, Louisiana. And from there, I didn't come back home until, you know, almost Labor Day, the end of August, when, when school started back up. And that journey, I called it the Summer of Love Tour because I was a single guy, but it was, it was more about racing than anything else, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, that journey took me from, I, I don't remember every stop in it now. I remember going to Gateway. I remember going to Norwalk. I went to um, uh, Empire Dragway up in New York. It's kind of halfway chasing the IHRA stuff at the time. Uh, the 50 in Michigan, the, the national event at 131, just a bunch of places that I had never been and never dreamed of going prior to that. Had a ball. I, don't, I didn't have a ton of success racing, but I had some and, uh, and just – like I say, a bunch of memories that I'll never forget. So that was mm -hmm. that was definitely the highlight of 2002 for me. That's awesome. It, it, it's good that you, that hopefully most of us take the time to to at least have a year or summer like that where yeah you you kind of put you know there'll be plenty of time to be an adult later and be responsible. Um, go out and have some fun. Agreed. I know that that responsible day is coming too. So. Um. <laughs> Don't, don't, don't rush it. <laughs> don't rush it. Don't push it. <laughs> so to set the stage a little bit, um, 2002, uh, we had the Enron scandal. Jimmy Carter won the Nobel Peace Prize. Uh, and I vaguely remember this, and I just remember how scary it was. This, 2002 is when uh, snipers terrorized the Washington, D.C. suburbs, killing 10, and then were eventually arrested sleeping in a car at a rest area, if I can remember. Yeah. Yeah, that, 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 was, that was frightening. You know, you, it, it shows you what you know, one or two evil people can do to an entire city where people, you know, didn't want to leave the house. I mean, they were just targeting random people. Um, and then, yeah, I remember when they were caught, uh, a guy just happened to be in a rest area, sees a couple guys sleeping in a car, sees, I think what he saw, maybe like the tip of a rifle out from under a blanket and, um, you know, th thankfully put two and two together, but uh, it was a strange time. Yeah, for sure. 
Um, we always like to set the table sports wise, because at least for me, that tends to bring me back to what I was doing when I watched that game or that accomplishment. Uh, the New England Patriots, surprise, surprise, won the Super Bowl over the St. Louis Rams. Tiger Woods won his third Masters. Uh, Winter Olympics were in Salt Lake City that year. In Major League Baseball, Anaheim Angels won the World Series over the San Francisco Giants in an all-California series. Uh, speaking of California, the Lakers were the NBA champions uh, with a sweep over the Nets. Detroit Red Wings over uh, Carolina for the Stanley Cup. And in NCAA basketball, it was the Terps, Maryland Terrapins, winning the NCAA tournament over the Indiana Hoosiers. That bring back any memories for you, Kevin? Uh, it does. Um, living in Southern California, I... Uh... You know, I, I am a diehard Chicago Cubs fan, but when it comes to the American League, I always thought the, the Angels were kind of cool. We used to go to a fair amount of games, so uh, it, it was neat to see them win. I remember being in Las Vegas at the end of the year. Um, actually, one of the casinos watching uh, the last game, and um, yeah, that, that was a good time. And, and, you know, and, and even the Lakers living out there, you know, I don't follow basketball much, but it was obviously a big deal whenever the Lakers won, and um you know, you, you would usually have at least a, a day or two of post-event riots, you know. Um, they kind of made a mess of the city, but, um, yeah, it was uh, always an interesting time when they won. Kelly Clarkson won the first American Idol in 2002. Uh, Spider-Man, Men in Black 2, uh, Die Another Day, big hits at theaters. Nelly was talking about how it's getting hot in here. <laughs> um, you got it bad from Usher. Uh, get the party started from Pink. Pink, uh, a gallon of gas, a buck sixty-one. It's actually getting back. Yeah, yeah about what it is close now. to that today, right? <laughs> interesting times. Interesting times. Take us through uh, the NHRA professional ranks, okay, Matt? Well, last uh, last week we were in two thousand one. We talked about the beer wars, Larry Dixon, Kenny Bernstein. Well, that carried over uh, into the two thousand two season. Uh, they raced in the final at Pomona to start the year. Um, Dixon won. Uh, it was one of nine wins he had that year, and he did something that's very rare. Larry Dixon won Pomona and carried the points lead all the way till the end of the 23-race season. Um, I mean, it was a dominant season, but, you know, Bernstein was with him step-by-step. Uh, uh, step. Uh, interesting, this was obviously pre-countdown. All of the championships except for Funny Car were decided um, – in Vegas. So, so there wasn't a tremendous amount of drama as far as the pros go heading into the last race at Pomona. Um, in funny car, it was the force team pretty much, uh, you know, John force won his 10th straight and 12th overall championship held off his then teammate, Tony Pedregon. Uh, Del Worsham was actually the best of the rest. He finished third, but um, I believe fourth place was Gary Densham driving forces third car at the time, you know, John was a three car operation and he managed to put three of them there in the top five. Uh, Pro Stock, Jed Coughlin, DNQs to start the year at Pomona. But the then opposite goes on, of Larry Dixon, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but then goes on a tear uh, with eight wins of the season. Uh, he clinched the championship by just winning the first round in Vegas. So, so definitely had some, some breathing room. A couple interesting notes. Uh, there were 13 different winners in Pro Stock that year, which coming off 15 the previous season, you know, so, so it was nice to see that sort of parody. I could do a better job this time. Jeg was driving a, uh, it, well, yeah, you just go last. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, last got, I got some notes from last year. Okay. Right? <laughs> yeah. Um, 
it was also the first Chevy Pro Stock World Championship since uh, Lee Shepard in 1984. Um, and Jag was in, I believe, a Cobalt. Possibly a Cavalier. Uh, Interesting. Wow, that seems movie. like a long. That's a. I wouldn't have never. I would have never thought that Chevrolet went that long in between. That well, was the reign of the Mopars but, 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 and WJ's Oldsmobiles, right? Well, yeah, not so much that, but you had Pontiac got heavily involved. You know, you had Firebirds for oh, a long time. Okay. Yep, yep. You you had you know old, a lot of old. It was basically Oldsmobile and Pontiac for you know better more than a decade. Um, and then it just you know as when Pontiac went away and you know Chevy kind of became the favorite brand again at GM. Um, but yeah, interesting to think that it was that long, but really, you know, you had Firebirds for many, many years, and then it was, you know, Cutlass Sierras and, and the, the traditional big wide body Cutlass. Mm -hmm. um, some Where was, stuff. What was the time frame for Alderman's dominance? That was like mid-90s? Uh, er, er, yeah, early to mid-90s. Yeah. I mean, he won his first uh, event in uh, 1989, and then by, you know, 93, 94, 95 was, you know, when those cars were, were doing their thing and, and winning championships. Um, sure. uh, Pro Stock Motorcycle, Angel, her third uh, championship, three straight. Uh, she held off Craig Treble, also a championship that was clinched in Vegas. Um, th that, that was an interesting year for Pro Stock Motorcycle for Angel, where um, her team, they had lost their Winston backing the year before. So they went through three or four different sponsors trying to piece things together that year. But Still managed to uh, to win enough races. I think she won six times, um, and, and clinched the championship. Uh, Shouts to the Craig Treble reference. I, sp I spent some time with Treble. Treble, I think mm -hmm. this is like a common occurrence because you know Treble came up racing sportsman motorcycles mm -hmm. and, and bracket racing, and uh, I think this is a very common phrase among the motorcycle community now. But the first time I ever heard it came from Treble, and he's like, "Yeah, man, I used to bracket race. I get down there and throw him some chicken wings." Yeah, chicken wing yeah that's when you work the throttle on the bike i thought that was hilarious it was the first time i'd ever heard it it's probably not an original you know tribalism but uh but it sounded good coming from craig yeah craig used to live here in, in indy in fact he used to be, be my in-home handyman here when, when we first moved in um he's, he's a fascinating guy and uh very likable and also a guy who could do a lot with a little you know he he, he never had a huge budget but um you know during his heyday he was clearly one of the best riders in the class and um really just you know knew how to not just ride a motorcycle but to race it you know he, he had the mentality of um you know he understood what it took to win and i, I think he finished uh, his career with i think 14 wins which uh pretty impressive given the level of competition when you're racing against you know the matt and andrew Hineses of the world and the dave schultz and angel and people like that yeah and he seemingly um, never had the the golden ticket or the best ride right no no mm -hmm. but pretty much you know his own crew chief uh, you know did did a little bit of everything so uh, a few other professional notes from the season. Uh, John Force in Chicago won his landmark 100th national event, uh, which, you know, again, we talked about it last week. Amazing to think that he's now sitting on 152 and, and still out there. You know, who, who knows where, where this ride ends. Uh, Kenny Bernstein at the end of the year had announced his retirement um, as a driver. You know, it, during the 2002 season, he had Brandon coming up. Uh, Brandon eventually finished his license requirements during the year. So the plan was to put him in the Budweiser dragster for the 2003 season. A couple of funny notes. Um, Budweiser, you know, who had been Kenny's sponsor for decades at Pomona in the finals, they actually gave him a Clydesdale, a real live Clydesdale horse as a parting gift. 
which sounds like a phenomenal thing until you realize a couple of things. Number one, Kenny didn't own a ranch. You know, his home was on, on the beach in Southern California. And I did not know this at the time, but, uh, and, and neither did Kenny, but uh, Clydesdales are big animals. They eat a lot. Uh, I, I believe they can consume maybe a thousand dollars worth of food a week. They, they, uh, they, they are not. So um, while Kenny was touched by the gesture, I don't believe he kept the animal for long. <laughs> <laughs> that that is cool like hey i got what the hell am i gonna do with this i thought kenny was a texas guy well, well he, he was originally but gotcha. but um there's not a whole lot of beachfront in in texas and when, <laughs> when you when you live in you know on a cliff overlooking the water in laguna um it, it's kind of hard to, to to beat that um there, there. Yeah. Um, sad note, we lost uh, Buster Couch, the, the longtime NHRA starter, former division director. He passed away in January. You know, he had retired years before, um, you know, with, with some health issues. But anyone who ever knew Buster or, or raced had him start an event. You know, Buster was truly one of the sports characters. We could go on and on for weeks telling Buster stories, um, some of which we can't tell. But, uh, yeah, a very colorful guy. Um, this was also something interesting that came up in the research. During the season, IHRA proposed a $100,000 match race between Clay Milliken, who was clearly at the time IHRA's most dominant driver, and Larry Dixon as the reigning NHRA champ. Uh, they wanted to do a $100,000 match race. It was proposed, and uh, it, for whatever reason, Don Perdome, who of course was Dixon's team owner at the time, refused. Um, he, he, he actually was quoted as saying, I sincerely appreciate the offer as well as the $100,000 purse. However, we just finished racing for $100,000 at the shootout event at Indy, and we're focused on winning the NHRA Powerade Championship and its $400,000 prize. Uh, so clearly the money was not enough to entice Perdome to take a weekend off and, and go run elsewhere. Although I have to wonder today if someone proposed a match race for that kind of money, uh, I'd almost think most teams would, would, would take it if, if, if you had a weekend open in your schedule. Yeah, I, I would tend to agree. That's a lot of money. I mean, even for a, a top fuel team, right? And yeah. as dominant as, as, as Clay and that team were, I would, I mean, Dixon had to be the odds on favorite, right? I, I, I would not have put my money elsewhere. Um, sure. You know, unless, you know, unless it was at a track that was not, you know, NHRA prep that that might have been a bit of an equalizer that kind of thing um yeah it, it, interesting debate but um as I said it would be interesting to see if somebody were to put up the money how many of the, of the big teams would you know now that the sport has kind of progressed to call outs and you know kind of the the street outlaw mentality could you apply that format to top fuel funny car pro stock pro mod or anything um yeah in, interesting debate for another for another day a uh, couple little Minor things. Um, John Lingenfelter, legend, uh, was critically injured when he crashed his sport compact car at the end of the year. Uh, he held on for, for more than a year, but ultimately passed away in late 2003. Um, and then of, of all the, the interesting things, we had uh, Japan's Yuichi Oyama uh, actually reached the top fuel final at Pomona, lost to Corey Mack. But um, it was one of, he wasn't the first uh, Japanese national to do anything. You know, Kenji Okasaki had won a funny car race, but it, I just thought it was kind of interesting from the perspective of how uh, drag racing at that point had started to become more international, you know, continues to be to this day. You know, we've had a bunch of successful Europeans come over. You see Australians doing well. 
Uh, we've got, you know, drivers now from the Middle East. Um, you know, it, it just uh, alludes to the global sport that it, that it has become. Now, I, re I remember Kenji well. I don't remember the name Yuichi Oyama. Was that a complete, like, flash in the pan? Did he race a, a season? I think he raced a, a year or two. It didn't, I don't believe he ran all the races. So, so it was kind of a, I don't want to say a one-off deal, but, you know, Kenji had a, had a you know, full-time ride, uh, you know, a decent ride. Um, but, yeah, th this was just, you know, I, I knew – Yuichi from when I actually went to Japan in the late 90s and saw him race there. Um, but just to, to, you know, for, for a guy to come over and, and reach a national event final, it was really kind of a, a kind of a fascinating moment. Right, let's uh, let's turn the table, shift gears, if you will, into the NHRA sportsman ranks. Um, Top alcohol dragster that year's champion was Art Gallant. Uh, mm -hmm. This is the 2001 end ended the reign of Rick Santos and, and ended his career five consecutive uh yeah. alcohol direction championships correct mm -hmm. and of course in alcohol funny car it's just a, a broken record stuck on repeat it's uh it's ace manzo sixth of seven straight uh top alcohol funny car world champions slacked off a little bit this year he, he didn't go perfect he had 829 points perfect would be 850 so he lost one round presumably somewhere along the way yeah yeah <laughs> and, and, and still won the championship by 90 points so so late in the year probably didn't have to work up much of a sweat um, competition eliminator. This was the, the answer to the trivia question that Austin Williams framed to, uh, to Jed and I a couple weeks ago. And I believe we talked about on, on last week's way back Wednesday, Mike say won a tight, uh, competition eliminator world championship, just seven points separated him and Don Stratton who finished mm -hmm. number two. We have talked a lot, Kevin, over the, <laughs> over the years of, uh, or, or over the, the months that we've done this and the years that we've spanned about Anthony Bertozzi's dominance of IHRA competition. I believe it's mm -hmm. 16 national championships. It could be off one or two. Honestly, I'm not sure Anthony knows the, the, the correct answer when you get to that many, right? right, right. This was the year of Anthony's lone NHRA world championship that I don't like, he's won so much in so many different venues. I don't, I wouldn't say that you need an NHRA world championship to justify his career, but it is a nice, um, cherry on top of the, the ice cream sundae, so to speak, that is Anthony Bertozzi. Says, says the man who has two of them. <laughs> well, I, I mean, it's, it's just, I think, I don't know that necessarily the NHRA championship is any more difficult to win than the IHRA championships. I think um, the field is, is deeper and, and just if, no, if for no other reason, then the NHRA deal is truly a nationwide championship, whereas IHRA was essentially half the country. But I wouldn't say that it's 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 necessarily more difficult, but I think it is viewed in a much broader light. Like I think there is more prestige, more allure that has always come along with the NHRA title over the IHRA championships. Right, and, and, and clearly in this case, Anthony earned this one. Um, his, you know, the field that that, that made up the, the the top ten that included Peter Biondo, Lincoln Moorhead, Dan Fletcher were your top four. So uh, Anthony had to fight tooth and nail. Uh, interesting, Anthony did not win a national event. Well, he won a super comp race earlier in the year, but he did not win a national event in super stock until the finals in Pomona. Now, the interesting thing is, remember this well, uh, the finals were delayed until Monday. Uh, Monday is also the banquet. Um, well, Anthony basically had to run the final round, jump in the car, drive 50, 40, 50 miles through LA traffic 
to make the banquet. Um, and, you know, I got there just in time, but I remember being at the banquet. Um, and it was funny, you know, at the time, Jill was working for NHRA in the field marketing department. So one of her responsibilities was to help coordinate the banquet uh, specifically as it related to sportsman guys. So the, um, the, the pressure to get those guys there, you know, they're trying to shoot photos, they're trying to do all this. And, and there'll be an interesting story that comes up here uh, in, in a minute, kind of to that end. Um, I mean, we, we can move on. Kevin Helms, second of three straight stock championships. Uh, again, big block stick shift Camaro, ultimate muscle car, um, that it, it's hard to understate uh, what a feat that is to, to win a bottom bulb class with a stick, with a big block car that obviously needs a decent racetrack to work. Um, that just uh, massive props to Kevin Helms for, for making that work. And I know he still has that car. You might well see it out again one day. Rowan um, gears. It's a funny story on Kevin. So Brian Robinson and I attempted the stock eliminator thing for two years. By the time it was over, we went in thinking, this is going to be easy, right? And we had some success. I won a couple of IHRA national events, um, and we won a division championship in NHRA. But it was so much work. And we never got anywhere, right? Like, just to stock eliminator in general, it gave me a whole new appreciation for them. But long story short, when we got to the end of year two, I was so sick of working on it. And we, we still were far from fast, and there was – our classes were far too populated to really be competitive, particularly in NHRA. We'd have way too many heads ups and we couldn't beat anybody. So I, I went to Brian and I said, I'm done. I'm, I'm over this. He was over it too. I said, the only way that I would drive this car again next year is if we put a stick in it. And his eyes lit up and he said, really? <laughs> and I go, yeah, it'd be way more fun. We'd probably work on it even more, mm -hmm. but I, I wouldn't have any heads ups and, and it's got to be fun to drive. Yeah. And then he got serious and I was like, Oh my God, we're going to do this. And now I realize, like, I don't even know how to stage a freaking car with a stick. Right. So I call Kevin, who else would you call? Right. Absolutely. And he says, I'll, and he just paints this picture like, Oh man, you'll love it. It's so easy. You got so right, much right. adjustability with the clutch and this and that. And I hang up the phone and I'm like, man, he's really going to talk me into this. And we ended up not doing it, but to hear Kevin is like, Oh yeah, man, it's no big deal. And then I thought about it and thought, Nobody but Kevin Helms could do that. <laughs> no, the, the the guys who do it and do yeah. it well, uh, you know, and, and there there are a handful of them. Uh, they talked, you know, I know, you know, Gene Bicklemeyer out of out of Division Five, Nebraska. Talked to him and said, it, it's better. You don't have to worry about a converter that gets hot and, and lose some consistency. And yes, the adjustability of clutch linkage and and you know, the base and static and all those things that they do. Uh, yeah, you 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 can get it to go down. Uh, almost any track, you know, I still, they make it sound easy, but it, it takes a bit of talent to do that. I still don't know how to stage it. No, I'm no, sure you I, could figure it out. I, I wouldn't, <laughs> uh, you know, I have a stick shift street car and that is enough for me and uh, I'm, I'm able to get it away from traffic lights fine. And I'm, that's, that's good. Uh, anyway, let's, so let's circle back to the banquet. We got, we got sidetracked. Uh, all right. Well, well, moving on, you know, Jim Hughes uh, won the 636 points was enough to score the, Super Comp Championship, uh, Super Gas, very interesting. Todd Stewart won it. Uh, it was the last championship crowned also on Monday. Uh, he held off Tom Stalba. Uh, now there, there's a backstory there of Tom was looking to borrow a car to come out to Pomona and for a number of reasons, the deal backfired and, and at the last minute, he, he, he was not able to borrow the car that he wanted. Um, anyway, uh, Todd Stewart wins the uh, 
wins the championship, much like Anthony had to hustle down to the banquet. The problem we had, uh, Todd, like many racers, appeared to be a bit superstitious. He did not want his photo taken, you know, typically we will take a photo of a driver with the championship trophy, with the jacket on, things, you know, we use it for slide shots for the banquet, video for the banquet, for National Dragster, for NHRA Media. I mean, there's a lot of things. And uh, at the time, Todd wanted none of it. You know, generally, if there are three or four people going into Pomona that are in the running for a championship, you will just shoot a photo of all of them. And when, you know, it's much like when you have an NBA championship, right? They make 100,000 T-shirts for the winner and the loser. And, you know, they go to starving kids somewhere or they get put on the 399 rack. Um, but uh, that year, if you ever see photos of the championships from 2002, you might notice that one of them is a little different. You know, there's not not a jacket, not not a champion's hat, not, not a photo with the big Wally. Um, that, that, that was Todd Stewart just being very, uh, uh, very cautious. And, you know, I, I guess, you know, I know, you know, you don't, people, they don't touch the Stanley cup until you win it. Uh, there, there's a lot of sports superstitions, but uh, that's, that's drag racing's answer to that. Um. Oh, I get it. Like the last thing that I would want in life is a picture of me holding a national championship trophy that I didn't end up winning. Like that would be, yeah having that in your possession, not that he would probably ever get it in his possession, but that would be like the ultimate lifelong kick in the balls. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. so I get but, it. But, I get but, it. But you also have to trust that that's the type of thing that would either be destroyed or just buried so deep and dark into the NHRA archives sure. that it would never see the light of day again. You know, if we had reason to run a photo, that's not the one we're going to play. <laughs> right. Okay. No, I get that. I would, I thought I was assuming that there was going to be a, a humorous Anthony Bertozzi tie in here because I can just imagine the scene and the stress that your lovely bride was under trying to put all this together. Right. And I can guarantee you that Anthony was not stressed. No, no. And, 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 and the beauty of it was, you know, Anthony, you know, Anthony's father was still alive. His family was there to see it. Anyone who ever met Anthony's father knows just what a gem of a human being was. He, he was easily one of the most funny, entertaining and engaging people I've ever known. And to have him at the banquet, a proud father, um, the, you didn't buy your own drinks that night. Uh, Pop Bertazzi took care of everybody and a good time was had by all. Yeah, good stuff, good stuff. Yeah. Uh, a couple other sportsman notes from the year. The Fletcher count, uh, Dan was at seven wins that year. So, so that was D Dan in his prime. Um, we talked recently about uh, fathers and sons racing in finals. And while they did not run in the final at Englishtown that year, Sambiano earned his lone NHRA national event win in Superstock, followed by Peter winning the stock title. So that was a huge memorable event. I'm sure if you were to ask Peter, he would tell you that's probably one of the greatest days of his career to be able to share the winner circle with your father. Uh, someone who, you know, in many ways, English town is the house that Sam built, yes. at least as far as sportsman racing. Um, uh, Sean Langdon, his first national event win ever, won Supercomp in Seattle over Mark Fall. Uh, and then more Peter trivia. Here's something that most of you would never have gotten. Uh, Peter went to Reading, which used to be a money track for him, gets to the final of Superstock and Stock and, and loses both. And that is the first time a driver had a chance to double and didn't at least come away with a split. So to think that the sports, arguably the sports best driver on his favorite track would have that happen is just um, 
it's pretty mind-boggling. You you would have got long odds on that. Yeah, because Pete's record at, at Reading is even, I think, more impressive than at Indy. And at Indy, it's pretty impressive, far, right? Far, far more, yeah. yeah. He, um, he, he pretty much owned that place. You mentioned the the prime of Dan Fletcher. Fletcher's one of the unique ones. His prime is like 30 years running and still going, <laughs> right. right? So pretty pretty wide uh, wide grouping to throw in there. Uh, I'll... I'll take over just for a second to, to run through the IHRA championships from 2002. Uh, again, we were able to, to dig up some archives on this. Um, again, as I mentioned earlier, part of my little summer tour, I hit a bunch of IHRA stuff. So a lot of this resonated with me. Uh, I don't think I was, I think I was in contention for the 1090 championship that year. I think I finished fifth, but uh, I, I recognized a lot of the names on the list and, and brought back some memories. So top sportsman was Dwayne Silence, one of, I think he won it at least two or three times in that time frame. Uh, he was your top sportsman world champion. Another uh, that won it, I know back to back, and I think had more than two um, in top dragster, the bulldog himself, Mr. Ricky Adkins. Uh, your modified world champion that year in IHRA was man at the name of Brian Seward. Monty Joe Bogan won the Superstock World Championship. Actually, when I pulled up the story for this, I saw a gleaming picture of Monty Joe sporting the tux at the banquet. He was looking good. Um, stock Eliminator that year was won by Brenda Grubbs. Uh, she was the 2002 IHR World Championship champion. Obviously, in years since, Brenda has gone on to uh, be essentially a, a, a fixture in the NHRA top 10, multiple top 10 sure. finishes. Um, strong contender both in stock and super stock it's not like she burst onto the scene with a championship this year but this was obviously the attention getter like wow you know brenda's for real um and i remember that stock championship coming down to the wire and i remember being really intrigued by it because there was a man that a lot of you hardcore bracket fans will know of and certainly the the virginia tennessee region are familiar with tim griffith but tim really tim made a name to me i'll just tell, i'll tell you this much it was probably a year or two prior i went to a b&m race in huntsville alabama and in the semi-final round i was in a dragster about like 480 in the semi-final round i run a jeep grand cherokee dialed like 11 something that was tim griffith and that mm -hmm. was not a strange occurrence to see him deep he's winning a bunch of footbrake races but he had a delay box in it and would would be was always a threat even at the big dollar bracket races um so i knew of tim well tim had purchased a front wheel drive cavalier ihra stock eliminator legal car that you know is not what you would if you're listing off like hey, i'm gonna go win a world championship here's the here's the the best potential weapons for the job you would get way down the list before you'd pick a front wheel drive cavalier obviously uh, you know, Steve Taylor and, and, and his wife Brenda had had success. Like that was some of the platform yes. I think that Tim was basing this on, but there was no one and probably to this day is no one better in a, you know, completely basically stock street equipped car than Tim Griffith. And he went on a tear that year. I remember seeing Timmy showed up at a division race in Texas and I was like, what in the world are you doing here? Well, he was winning. That's what he did. Yes. And, yes. Uh, and nearly won the championship. He finished second to Brenda that year. Well, my, my, my Tim Griffith story. He also, one, the, the first year that Summit came in and we brought the NHRA champions out to Pomona, he came and he drove the Jeep, I believe, clear across. Right, from Virginia, yeah. From Virginia. And, and he thought, why in the world did you do this? And, and um, met him. And yeah, he, he, he was, uh, I don't remember if he actually won the national championship that year. I believe he did. But um, 
yeah, he, he, he was the real deal. And I remember meeting him and just thought that it was crazy. You know, you, you could have saved yourself many hours and many dollars by just flying out, renting a car like a lot of the sportsman guys do. But no, he, he felt uh, pretty comfortable with his Jeep. So he, uh, he dragged the thing 2,700 miles or so uh, across the country. Yeah, and it's funny, to, to, to your point of front-wheel drive cars, this is interesting trivia. You know there has been one front-wheel drive car to win an NHRA national event. To win a national event, okay. To, 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 to win in. I got no idea. Yeah, it was a 1986 English town, and uh, of course his, uh, his name escapes me now. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, it's happened one time, and... Uh, I have always thought if you really wanted to pose an interesting challenge to someone with Peter Biondo or Dan Fletcher's talent to say, I'm going to offer you $50,000 to run a year in a front wheel drive car to see if you can win the championship and just see if one of the really, really top tier talents, you know, could a Scotty do it? Could you do it? Could, you know, any of the, the, the really, really, um, you know, uh, you know the, the the top tier guys could could you could you pull it off could could you even finish top 10 yeah that's it's, a tough row to hoe i was actually gonna gonna offer up a guess which obviously would have been wrong for the front wheel drive i i wasn't i don't obviously don't remember him winning a national event because he didn't but when i first met kyle riley now mm -hmm. sfg promotions fame he was driving a front wheel drive something in stock eliminator with a degree of success like i know yeah. I, it seems like he was, you know, had a double digit number on it. And when I looked at it, you're like, what in the world is this thing? I'm 15 something, but he could drive it. He could drive anything. Yeah. Uh, it was Mark Yacobone. I just looked it up. I, I, it was on the tip of my tongue, you know, race stock for a long time, still around. I, I think he still runs a little bit. Um, but, uh, and, and I think it was one of, you know, one of the little Dodges, one of the little Horizon or, you know, little Charger 2.2s, but um, to, uh, to do that, I mean, those cars are just notoriously inconsistent, and I, I don't know what you'd have to hold to be effective. And now, you know, typically they're 14, 15, 16 second cars. So now, now you'd have to judge guys that are running mid to low eights, some of them even in the sevens. You, you'd have your hands full with one of those cars, I think. Yes, yes, to put it lightly. Um, Jed and I were talking about, because we were talking about the greatest. Uh, race car names of all time so we were talking about the underdog and i remember mm -hmm. the underdog yeah. going on a run at indy it's been a few years ago but four or yeah. five rounds in stock at indy and just the place would erupt when he'd turn the wind light on about 16 something right mm -hmm. oh, the yeah. underdog is a I, I i got confused on the show i'm not 100 percent sure it's a ford tempo or escort yeah. or something right it is it is it lives up to the name the underdog and stock eliminator for sure all right so ihra 2002 quick rod championship was the first of two IHRA World Championships for my man, racing Jason Lynch. At the time, uh, Jason was driving for Mark Horton, had the Summit colors, um, hadn't, uh, hadn't really – Jason was a, a, probably a nationally known name at that point. He'd, he'd come up, kind of hit the national scene racing with Edmund Richardson. Uh, had transitioned over to driving for Mark and the Summit Colors, focused on IHRA. He also finished top 10 in, in uh, 990 that season. I think he was fourth. And uh, I just, I remember it was a it was a pretty tight battle between Jason Lynch and John Furr. And we were all, you know, that that group, again, that, that IHRA crowd in those days was pretty tight. And I just remember laughing once Jason clinched because the running joke was, man, I can't wait 
for the, uh, it's an escort. Thank you very much. The underdog yeah. is an escort. So, um, but it was a running joke within our group. Hey, this, this uh, banquet speech is going to be epic when Jason Lynch gets up there. Cause you can just see him in front of a thousand people going, man, that was fun. Thanks Mark. And just walking off the stage. Right. And it yeah. wasn't like that at all. He actually did a really good job and kind of captivated the room. But I was, I was, I was on edge just from a man to, to go up there and do that. I wanted to see it. Um, so Jason was your, was your quick route world champion. Damon Dabbs, who we've talked about before on this podcast, was the 990 world champion that year. Tight battle with John Vineyard. Vineyard, actually, the, uh, the answer to a unique trivia question as well, I believe – could be wrong but in the true sportsman categories now um, it's definitely wrong now for <laughs> at a time um john is still one of just a handful of racers to have won uh world championships within both sanctioning bodies uh, sure. at least on the sportsman side i know the answer to that for a long time was him and anthony bertozzi i think john was actually the first to do it now they i know they yeah rampy. that's true that's actually rampy did it before vineyard you're right yeah uh, Rampy's done it. Scotty's done it now. There's a, there's a handful. Uh, well, sure. Jimmy Mason's done it. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but yeah, Vineyard, one of the few on that short list. And that wasn't the year that he, that he won the, the IHRA championship, finished second to Damon Dabbs. And uh, Hot Rod, the category I was talking a little bit about earlier that I was involved in the points chase in, uh, Eddie Bolton, uh, basically a, a bottom ball racer out of Maryland, I believe, uh, won the uh, 1090 championship that year in a I think it had a trans brake, but it was not like what you would typically consider your 1090 car. It was very mm -hmm. much make it work, and he was dominant really all season. And it was quite the um, the contrast in equipment and styles as it wound down to the end because the championship ended up being a very, very tight race. It came down to – I watched Bob Fuller lose the round he needed to win at Rockingham. He was one round away. But mm -hmm. you had Fuller's super gas car, essentially, that he you could run in 1090 and IHRA as long as it had enough weight. So right. at the time was like 1090 at 155 or 160, some obscene <laughs> mile per hour. And then Eddie that I don't think, I, th I want to say that he dialed the car with weight. Like there was a big story behind it. Like it was 1090 at 120, all you had. And those two battling it out was a neat story. Uh, so, and, and then Eddie Bolton, like I say, ends up uh, as your world champion. You mentioned, and I think this was fast forwarded a year or two. You mentioned Tim Griffith winning the first NHRA summit. Uh, world championship i know it was tim and and uh mike ruff and super pro I'm, I'm leaving out the pro champion i'm sure um but 2002 was the inception of ihra's summit super series and this was a huge huge program really um is still a, a big deal today but especially at its inception um the winner that first year and really for the first several years it was a six-figure purse. I, I, I just read the release on this. Chip Horton won it, which is fitting, too, because he's one of the probably three, five winningest drivers in the sports history if you just take overall race wins. And yeah. Chip documented that better than most. Like He had 700-plus you, you, you don't need to keep stats for Chip. He, he's happy to do them yes. for you. <laughs> precisely, precisely. And uh, Chip dominated the – you know, the way that the summer super series worked and still works to some extent, but it was a little bit different format then was you didn't have to leave your home track and chip won nearly every race, you know, at his home track. And to win this championship was $111,000 cash. It was a new Pontiac Grand Prix. It was a Buell motorcycle. 
to win this Summit Super Series championship. So that was a huge deal. I remember when they announced it, it was a huge deal. I remember it shed light on Chip's, you know, illustrious career. I thought it was fitting that he won it. And uh, it was just interesting going back to, to put the pieces together and realize that that was the same 2002 season. Yeah, th- th- there are some interesting, uh, an interesting debate of guys like that who, I mean, and, and Chip is, as you said, certainly probably in the top five of, of, you know, that could show you wind slips from a career that, that are stacked a mile high. Um, but guys who don't typically travel, don't typically race for big money. Where do they fit in when you're having these best ever discussions? Um, you know, I remember he, he and Tim Butler used to go back and forth a little bit, you know, uh, we'd go to like the division two bracket finals and, and Horton would say, well, I have 21 track championships. Tim only has 13. And, you know, Tim could counter by saying, well, I, I just won two days at Moroso last year, you know, whacked him for 12 grand. You know, how much did you win at Atlanta Speed Shop Dragway? You know, so, so it's um, kind of an interesting dynamic, but I think it's also illustrates that there, you know, as we've always said, there's a place for everyone. You know, if, if you're someone who doesn't want to travel, doesn't have the means to travel, it's not your thing. You can still create a nice niche for yourself and, and get some notoriety. And, and obviously this program. I remember when it was announced, I thought it seemed to me like a program that you could potentially manipulate. You know, if if you're, you know, you get towards the end and and you need a win and there's that much money at stake, you know, your, your sportsman eliminator at some track, couldn't you just buy off the six or seven guys you need to win? But clearly that didn't happen. You had a very deserving champion and uh, interesting program and a nice footnote of history of, you know, to, to win that kind of cash without ever leaving your home track. Um, yeah, fascinating stuff. It's funny you bring that up because that triggered a memory for me. I remember there being rampant discussion about like, how is this going, you know, how are, how are we going to keep this fair? And I don't know that I try necessarily implemented anything. I think they did trying to police that, but if you talk that kind of money and again, among your, your home crowd of racers where everybody knows everybody, like I'm sure everyone I'm whatever I'm chip may have had his enemies from time to time, but I'm sure you get to that point. Like everyone that he races with wanted to see him win that, you know, oh, yeah. including, including your promoter, most likely. Sure. Yeah. Your track operator yeah, right. and your officials. Every level. Yeah. <laughs> right. mm-hmm. It's funny. Um, you bring up Tim Butler, who we, we again, we've talked about on previous uh, week's episodes. I'll, I'll shout out just because I saw him on here, Brian Mullaney. Uh, thanks for the, the update. He sent me a text uh, over the last week showing the point standings, current 2020 point standings at Immokalee, uh, Tim Butler leading both Super Pro and Pro. Some things never change. Uh, we talked about the sustained dominance of Dan Fletcher. Butler's right in there too. It seems like that's never really stopped. I, I've, I started going to the races uh, in about 1980, 81, the little eighth mile sunshine drag strip near my house. Tim was already a star at that point, winning uh, well, at the time he had a duster and his Firebird streetcar, and yeah, typically led the points in, in, in both year after year after year after year. And it was one of those things where, much like Frank Manzo, when he didn't win, you would ask what went wrong. The um, the fifty grander in Michigan that years as we kind of switch over into bracket racing. I was there for this. Mm-hmm. I remember Doug Heinish winning the 50. I don't remember yeah. anything else about the weekend. I couldn't tell you who he beat in the final. I don't remember any. Uh, I, I couldn't either. I, I, I do know that he drove a roadster and had quite a bit of success with it. 
Um, I don't believe I was there that year, but, but I had seen him. You know, he, he's a former Moroso five-day winner. I think he went down there sometime around that, maybe before or after, and it had won. Um, but, yeah, I, you know, again, we, we've discussed this time after time. The further back we go, yeah. it's a little more difficult to find results from uh, uh, some of the big bracket events. And, and, and it's, you know, it's sad. It's a, spart, a part of the sports history that's lost likely forever. So you really just have to rely on people's memories and, you know, occasionally you'll run across some old photos. And, you know, I, I have tried lately, since I have a lot of time on my hands these days, to, to if, if I find something, you know, document it, try, try to document, you know, I do have a pretty comprehensive list of Moroso five-day winners. You know, I, I'd like to be able to do that with, with other events. So, you know, th th there's, there's a nice side project. Um, yeah, no, Heinish, I, I know he was in a Vega that at that time and it was it was surprising then because that was an era that was largely dominated by dragsters you know mm -hmm. I mean that it that had kind of taken over and it was long before we separated dragsters and door cars it's kind of had this recent you know resurgence and renaissance so to anyone winning in a in a slow door car was a bit of a surprise and i don't think coming into that race that i was familiar with doug to your point i think he had one uh, Moroso. If if it wasn't prior to that, it was after. Right? Uh, actually, actually, I can tell you it was 1989. The final day, he beat he beat Harry Peanut Dixon Jr. in the final of the uh -huh. last day. Uh, that was a year that David Rampey won the overall points. Um, so yeah, so so it was it was actually a, a decade right. earlier, but um, almost but yeah. before the time that I really started paying attention. Right, and sure. Heinish, the way that I always looked at Doug is especially now in retrospect, he was ahead of his, of his time and his game because he would tell you like, look, I'm not trying to, I'm, I'm not the greatest finish line driver. Cause I'm not trying to, to drive that end of the track. He would just spend so much time and energy and attention to detail on making his cars so good, which is like the way that racing works today, at least on the eighth mile bracket yeah. bracket level. It wasn't the way that most of the quote unquote winners did it back then. And he was just constantly that attention to detail. Like he, he seemingly had the best car at the track a, a fair majority of the time. Well, isn't today, today's thing, now you spend the time and attention to detail to make your car as perfect as possible. And then you hold five. <laughs> I think we're growing out of that. that definitely we? the stage, yes, for the, for, uh, over the course of the last decade. Now it feels like it's getting so much more precise that more racers are realizing like, hey, this thing's way better than I am right yeah, yeah and kind of falling into that wheelhouse but it wasn't it's funny i've had this conversation with tommy phillips too and this is getting off subject because growing up i would laugh at tommy you know we were fairly close i'm like because i would watch him go to a national event and win super comp and i don't think ever be going slower than 880 i mean just holding a ton broadcasting it to the entire facility ripping the throttle for the last eighth mile wind light and then I would watch the same guy in the same car come to a $5,000 to win, $10,000 to win bracket race the next week and never move the dial in off of, say, like, you know, at that time, maybe 484 and hold it on the floor and go 484 seven times in a row and win the check. And I'm like, is this the same guy? Like, I don't get it. Why are you yeah. not? Why you can drive so much better? Why don't you do that? And, he's, and he told me then this is 20 year, plus years ago. No, man, this thing's way better than I am. Like, that's yeah. just not the way to do it in this type of racing. And, and now, like, he was... Right. He was so far ahead of his yeah. game, but at the time I thought, that's so weird. How do you do that? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, since we're off topic, I will tell you a funny story. Looking at the results of the Moroso five day from 1989, it was Harold Stout's win. Um, you know, and, and Harold is known primarily as a car owner, as, you know, David Rampey 
be sponsored, but Harold, I remember that as one of the best driving performances I'd ever seen. Um, he was one of the early times where you had a guy that was pretty much double O every, every run. And I remember, um, I remember, I just remember this funny story. It's funny how you remember these little things, but they get down to like the semis and Harold's in the lanes and he looks at his time slip and he's like dead on with a nine, but he doesn't want to move the dial. So he's like, it's like, man, I really wish I could just take 10 pounds out of this thing. And, and David Rampy standing there and says, well, Harold, just give me your billfold. <laughs> and I always just remember that as being just a really funny line. But, but when you talk about great driving performances, uh, you know, I don't have the time slips, but, but nine rounds of that event, he was pretty much money every round and uh, uh, went on to win it, beat Scotty in the final. So. Uh, there you have it. We, we, we've come full circle. Yeah, no, that's awesome. And uh, in a Chevy too, I assume, right? In a Chevy too, of course. Yep. Um, with that in mind, let's, let's speed it up. What? 13 years to Moroso 2002. Of course. Perfect. Perfect segue into this. Um, 2002, your, your winners, George Tomasi senior. Uh, again, uh, another kind of career defining win. I think most people, if you were to ask them, you know, what are the events you want to win? You want to win the million? or one of the millions, and you want to win a day at Moroso. Uh, George did that. Scotty Richardson, day two winner. Um, Mike Bloomfield, which would be senior, of course, at that point. Uh, Britt Cummings gets his uh, Moroso win that year. Uh, John Cimento, I believe, uh, yep. Division One guy, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and then this will come to as a surprise to no one. Scotty, in two final rounds, has a winner and runner-up, wins the overall points. <laughs> It was, uh, it's seemingly, if it wasn't Scotty, it was Peter. It was, it was almost an annual thing, right? Yeah. Yeah. Or, or, or Kenny Underwood. Ken, Ken, Kenny's That's really true. still, still kind of the, uh, the, the king of the Moroso five day. He's mm -hmm. got all those clocks and. <laughs> that year's uh, million dollar race. So 2002, this was early in the millions history. This was maybe the fifth, fifth or sixth million. Uh, um, 96 was the first year. So. Okay. So this would be number six then. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So million was at Memphis. Um, Joel Reynolds, uh, just a, a, a back half door car. It looks like a Nova, but I believe it was a Pontiac. That uh, sounds right. Mm -hmm. Out of uh, out of Alabama, was the million dollar race winner this year. Reynolds, a previous million dollar runner up. He had runnered up to no Toby Barnes runnered up the first one. He runnered up the year Tomasi won, right? Uh, that sounds correct. I'm almost, I was, was going to say Gary Williams, but you could be right about Tomasi. Yeah, it was obviously one of the first couple of years. I, I think it was to Tomasi. And if memory serves, I couldn't find any um, specific data on this. But if memory serves, I hope I'm, I hope I'm not wrong. Um, Joel Reynolds defeated Claude DeBonis in that million dollar race final in Memphis in 2002. And the reason that sticks out to me, again, if I'm not getting confused, Claude was on a run because I believe yeah. he had won the Thursday, like opening day mm -hmm. of the, of the million dollar weekend. And this was at a time where the million was really beginning to blow up. You know what I mean? Yeah. I don't know. I'm going to say 400 plus cars. There was a time where it grew to 600 plus. I think yeah. that was probably a few years later, but the million was, was, beginning to really get its footing as a big big yeah and you you'd, you'd by that point you'd probably top 250 260 in the main event to, to make that you know you you were far exceeding the minimum payout you know you you were now winner's share quarter million dollars you know it, it it's always been a prestigious event but at that point uh, it had become uh, really a focal point of the year as far as bracket racing 
And that was that era too. I, I always felt like Memphis was a great location for that because nowadays, like the any of these races outgrow ninety five percent of the facilities, including probably Memphis today. Mm -hmm. But just from pure from a pure location standpoint, like it's more centered. You know, I I don't know I don't know how far west you could get. Like Topeka or Gateway might be more centered, so to speak. But Memphis always seemed to bring cars from everywhere. Like. Yeah. It just seemed like a good central spot. Yeah, I, I would think if, if you had a, a world-class facility, say, Nashville, I think that, yes. might be the, that might be the sweet spot of where you could get – it wouldn't be too hardly bad for the Texas guys or the Division Four guys to come over. You could drag the guys out of Division One, the Northeast. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and even if you're coming – you know, if you happen to be a West Coast guy, maybe, maybe a, you know, a Denver or Phoenix-type um, you know, I mean, you're going to travel quite a bit to do it anyway, but, sure. um, you know, I'd like to see that. I mean, that, that's why I feel like, you know, Bowling Green is a good track for a lot of events where, you know, people are wanting things like LS Fest and, they, you know, they, they, that, that attracts people from all over the country. So interesting. Beach Bend's a great place for anything. It's my favorite yeah. track. I, I, I'm a little biased. I, um, I, I've only, yeah, I've been there numerous times. I've only raced there once, but I enjoyed it quite a bit. So. Yeah. Um, so, Back on the on the Joel Reynolds kick, the one thing that I wanted to add here, he was, I believe, the first name on what is still a very illustrious list of racers that have been in multiple million-dollar race finals. Obvious answers at this point are Kenny Underwood, who's won two, Gary Williams, who's won two, Dave Triplett, who has won two and runnered up one. Triplett is, is the yeah. current king of the million after, after yeah. last year's victory. Um, but there's a few others that just kind of – maybe slipped through the cracks over, over the course of history. Um, obviously, Joel Reynolds being one, be, just because it's almost 20 years ago now, right? Yeah, but, uh, sure. he, he was in not back-to-back, -back, but $2 million race finals within a four-year span, something mm -hmm. like that, four or five-year span. Jeff Rooks, uh, another one, another Alabama racer, was in back-to-back million-dollar finals, won it really – I don't want to say out of nowhere because I knew Jeff and, and, and raced with Jeff, but mm -hmm. Jeff then and now might – be lucky to race five times a year and just yeah. has really since that first win just shows up the million and shows out at the million seemingly every year he is late like he has got as many million dollar race splits as anyone i think and uh sure. and for someone that races as little was always a, a standout in that regard but yeah he won and then runnered up back to back years i want to say maybe oh five oh six somewhere in that range um and then if you broaden it out beyond the original million, you get a couple more. Obviously, Verdi stands out as, as winning the Spring Fling million and, uh, and the million in 18. 18? No, 16. And then um, and you take Ricky Jones. You go back to the Millennium Million. He won that uh, the last year of it. We talked about that last week. Yeah. was also runner-up to Ray Ray the year that Ray Ray Miller won uh, the original million. And Scotty Richardson, uh, again, in 01 that we've talked about before as well, back-to-back. Uh, or two million dollar race finals ended up losing them both, but in the same season with the the Millennium Million at Rockingham and uh, the Million at Montgomery. I don't think I'm leaving anyone out there that has been in multiple million dollar race finals, but I could be. Yeah, it's um. No, nobody really comes to mind. You know, there, there's some guys that yeah typically make the split. You know, I don't think Kenny Underwood has not been in two finals or has yeah, he? Kenny's won twice. Yeah. Kenny. Oh, yeah. Right. Kenny. Kenny, Gary and, and triplet. The, right. Okay. The Florida trio. Right. Even though Kenny's yeah. not in Florida anymore. Right. Sure, um, sure they'll claim him. Yeah. And, uh, Troy. 
Now, mm-hmm. been close. The one of the one of the years that Gary won, Gary beat Troy in the semis. Mm-hmm. So that right. would have been multiple um, million finals for Troy as well. Uh, Peeps has been close, obviously after winning. If you you obviously count the uh, the spring fling million, it was just last year he won in Vegas. He lost at three in Montgomery, and I believe he's got at least one more semifinal at Montgomery. So he's been mm-hmm. close a lot as well, but I don't think two yeah. finals yet. Yeah, we'll wait another couple months. We we might well add somebody to that list. Yes, yes, some some big big stuff on the uh, on the horizon. We're just uh, what now a little over two weeks removed from kicking off the SFG 1.1 in Martin, Michigan, which uh, more than doubles the biggest previous payday in sportsman racing. And I just, we talked about this a little bit off air. I I feel Kevin, like the, the timing of all this, Kyle and AJ didn't necessarily plan it like this, but they couldn't Mm -hmm. have planned it better. Like I I think the timing is perfect. It's going to be huge. So, 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 so since, since we we, we like to, prognosticate a little bit put a number on it tell me what you believe after the split the winner share of that event oh i thought we were gonna guess car count okay um no i think i think we know what the car count is going to be i think the car count will be well north of 600 yeah i would go i think north of that yeah i would i would say north of 700 would be my guess um so the winner's purse in the big show. So it's 1.1 million to win. I haven't even really looked at the the depth of the purse. I'm sure it drops it, it's off not massively. a lot. It, it, oh, it's right. 50,000 runner ups. So right. the, yeah, so it, it's, it, it's all up top. It's going to get chopped up. Realistically, I hope because I'm I'm just not a fan of getting down there and cutting it all up and the the finalists race for 10 grand or something like that. Um, but obviously, finalists can do whatever they want. Right. Um, I will say that the winner gets, I hope north of 400, realistically, I'll say the winner gets 350. You know, it's funny. You and I think, I was thinking in the 375 to 400 range. Yeah. I, I guess what's, what's going to be interesting, because nobody's ever raced for this sort of money before, as you mentioned, twice as big as the last big event, and there's only been one of those. Do, when they get down to, say, 40 cars, do they take a break and say, whoa, why don't we pull, you know, a hundred grand off the top and give each of the losers this round, you know, or, or you know, or, or, or even, you know, 50 cars, give it, you know, give everybody five grand and then go on from there. You know, how far back do you want to cut it? You know, and I wonder if the promoters have thought this typically a split is 15, maybe 18 guys. What's it going to be like when you have, 40 perhaps or more drivers gathered around and, and it needs to be a unanimous consent. Mm-hmm. You might see an hour or more between rounds while they hash this out. Or do you just have a couple guys say, you know what, it's too early to cut this up. Let's run one more round, get it down to 32 or less. And then we'll start talking serious dollars. Yeah, no, I could see it going either way really largely dependent on who's left in and how much they want to dig in their heels. You know, I, I mean, it's, uh, it's to be an interesting dynamic. And I've always thought because I've been a part of some of these conversations or certainly witnessed some of these conversations that I feel like get a little bit out of hand. Yeah. Um, I do think, and <laughs> I, I would, <laughs> yes, I'm sure that, uh, that, that Kyle and, and AJ and that staff has thought about this more than I have, because this is literally the last five minutes now, you know, mm-hmm. right. because I, things get amplified, you know, 
five times probably what I'm used to the, that, that million dollar split conversation. And to your point, the numbers could be much more massive. Um, I've always personally felt like that discussion should be among drivers and perhaps one, you know, representative yeah. and that unless the drivers want to make the actual numbers known, like it's not really any, anybody else's business. And I would, I've, I've kind of lobbied for this for a long time to make that discussion more private, you know, whether it's even inviting the, the last remaining cars up to a, to a suite in the tower or something to actually talk this out and make sure everyone's on the same page. Everyone understands where they're at. Like with that kind of money involved, I would really, I would trumpet for something along those lines. I, I understand that point of view. And I, and I won't say I disagree with it, but I also think for the integrity of the sport, maybe it's best. There's a little transparency where you know what's going on. I mean, you, you, I think you could argue this both ways and make That's a valid a fair case. Point too. Yep. Both, um, you know, since we know that posting the purse, you know, th this event would not be nearly as dynamic if you just said, okay, we're going to pay 400,000 to win and 340 runner up and, you know, whatever the split ultimately ends up being, you know, it doesn't work if you cut it up beforehand. But I think... I think in the interest of fairness, and, and maybe I look at it more as a media guy than a racer, I want to know. Everybody wants to know. You know, I get texts from races I'm not even at of people, hey, how did, you know, how did they chop this up? Uh, I think as a promoter, it, it's fair to know I would like to see it done above board to come out and say they're racing for this much. And, and I think that answers a lot more questions than, than it poses. And you know, again, anything you can do that uh, to be transparent and to keep the integrity of the event intact. Um, you know, I, I would hate to see a final round come down where they split it evenly and don't run for anything. I mean, I know it's happened at times. Guys have probably said, look, I'm, I'm happy to be here. I'm running my buddy. Let's just chop it up and run for the trophy. I'm sure that happens at times, but I would want to know. And then, you know, you and I discussed this in a prior episode. If we ever actually get to the point where there is any sort of actual legal wagering on these events. And it's possible there could be because the, the country is clearly moving in that direction where sports betting is becoming much more ingrained Then there would have to be absolute and complete transparency. In fact, you might not even, you'd have to probably fundamentally change the business model because you might not be able to have any splits at all. Um, you know, that, that, that's a whole nother topic, but, um, but yeah, I, I, I would prefer the transparency to know what guys are racing for to know what the guy, you know, did this guy make a side deal with this guy? Um, just, just my thoughts. Maybe it's just a curiosity in me. No, that's a solid point. I'd never really thought about it from that perspective. I, I, I think I'm not, I don't know if I'm inclined to agree, but I definitely see your point. I think reasonable minds could disagree. I think where I'm going with it even more so than the transparency aspect, because I could be off base there and that the actual final numbers should be private. I just hate when, you have somebody that wins a, in this case, $1.1 million race and some idiot out there is bashing. I'm like, I can't believe you only walked away with 370 grand. When's the last time you won 370 grand, right? <laughs> right, right. Yeah. But, but I, the, the main point to me in keeping that discussion uh, like more controlled is just simply that there is not outside influence or pressure on actually determining the money. Like once that's sure. set in stone, I don't necessarily have a problem with that being broadcast, but I don't think anybody but the racers involved or the, you know, those oh, very close to the racers involved should have anything to do with the action. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I yeah. certainly agree. I mean, honestly, if I were the promoter, just I would most likely 
want that discussion to be private, right? Get everybody to agree on the numbers. And then after it was said and done, I wouldn't have any problem. My, my sure. post event press release would include the total payout, mm -hmm. you know, which is the impressive number of, you know, in this case, it's going to be north of probably 1.3 million. Mm -hmm. If you take total payout and, and just list what the check that I wrote to each driver. Yeah. And that way, again, you've got transparency. And to me, it doesn't really diminish the event. Actually, I feel like it diminishes it if you say this driver won 1.1 million when the fact is he won nothing of the sort. Right. You know, if he's holding up a big paper check that says pay to the order of John Smith, $1.1 million, and you think he only got 270 grand. I, I would much rather see him holding up a check that says 270,000 and the paper check that is in his pocket matches that number. And I think that guy is going to the bank tomorrow to cash a check north of a quarter million dollars. That to me is far more impressive than true. So, Fair point. Know, and, and, and again, you, if you ask 50 people, you might get 50 different opinions on this, but that's, that, that, that would be my vote. And we'll, we'll see how it all goes down here in a couple of weeks. That's, it's going to be a fascinating time that might well, I don't want to overstate this. It might well determine the course of bracket racing, which way we go in the future. I, I do agree with that. It has that potential and you took the word out of my mouth. Fascinating was exactly the, uh, so that's that an adjective. You're the writer. That's, that's the word I was going to use. Yeah. That, that is, that is an adjective. Kevin, thank you again, as always, uh, any shout outs, closeouts before we close and wrap uh, this up? I, I think we're good. You know, we're uh, just, if, if you want to get back to, to real life today, it's good to see your social media feeds start filling up with more and more race car stuff sure. results from big events around the country. I think it's, it's amazing that last week we had a hundred thousand dollar race, a $50,000 race, a couple, at least a couple of tens that I know of mm -hmm. not too far. In fact, I know, I guess a couple of guys actually left the spring fling mm -hmm. and drove all the way to Louisville to race Sunday for 10. That is hardcore. Mm -hmm. um, you would think after a hot weekend where you had rain and everything and, uh, you, you, you'd maybe want to take Sunday off and go, go relax. Well, you're not going to go home and watch sports on TV. So yeah, maybe you might as well have hit the next drag strip, but that from the NHRA perspective, we are getting revved up for uh, start the season. Well, we're already back in the swing with points meets. The few that we've had have done pretty well. A couple more this week that I expect will do well. Uh, national events. We're now less than a month out from resuming the season here in Indy with two events. Uh, they're going to be very different, but but very special events. You've got kind of some unique things. There's actually one of the events here is a weekly bracket race. Pro sportsmen, you know, it's going to be basically the same format as you would have here at Indy, but the winners are going to get Wallies. So how cool is it to get a Wally from Lucas Oil Raceway Indy during a national event? Um, you know, th there's that. You know, we are going to have fans at both of them. So uh, it gives me some hope that that we're just gradually easing towards. Uh, a sense of normalcy again. Yeah, no question. The optimism is up, I think, uh, most all the way around the country. And to your point, we're going to have a, uh, a ton of content, whether it's uh, you, myself, Jed, like we, we're going to have a lot to talk oh, about yeah. over the course yeah. of the next couple of months. So looking forward to that for sure. Kevin, thanks as always. Uh, thank you for watching on uh, Facebook Live or listening on the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast, particularly those of you that have stuck around to the end. We appreciate you. Kevin and I will be back again next week. With, with 2003, I suppose, right? We Might as well. We'll just keep it rolling. Fair enough. We'll see you then. <laughs>
Enrollment in This Is Bracket Racing Elite is now open. You've heard me discuss, or at least reference, This Is Bracket Racing Elite. It is the premier offering of our website, thisisbracketracing.com. Elite is a membership community designed specifically to help you get from where you are today as a racer to who you want to be as a racer. Led by knowledgeable professionals, Justin Lamb and myself are longtime instructors and we bring in a host of guests, racers that you know, racers that you respect, led by knowledgeable instructors and surrounded by supportive peers that are ultimately striving for the same goal in their own unique way. The truth is, at each event, there are 100 plus entries, there's one winner. At the end of each season, there's one champion. That feeling, not so much the money, not so much the trophy, that feeling of achievement, that sense of accomplishment, that tip of the cap from your peers, that's why we do this. You can dream of that feeling all you want, or you can take action, take steps toward becoming that racer. If you're ready to take the first step, this is Bracket Racing Elite is for you. Enrollment is open now for a limited time. Learn more at thisisbracketracing.com slash elite before we close the doors again on December the 8th.